Reading will be 2 Kings chapter 6, 15 through 17. 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw in the hills, full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We're glad that our visitors are with us this morning. I know we've got a number of people from out of town. We're really glad that you've come to worship with us, and we hope that you're able to come back and be with us again soon. Um, if you get a chance this morning, make sure you take advantage of the opportunity to say goodbye to Sandy Cole. This is her last Sunday with us. As you know, Sandy is moving up to East Texas. It's a good place to move if you're going to move away from Katie. And uh, she is she's going to be uh, closer to John, her husband. Um, my heroes are people that are long-term caregivers. I hope your heroes are as well. It's not a ministry that anybody would wish on themselves and on their loved ones, but sometimes it's just what happens because our bodies don't do what they're supposed to do. And Sandy has done exceptionally well in caring for John over the last several years as his mental condition deteriorated. And he's got some help that he needs, and we're thankful to God for that. We're also thankful for people like Sandy. And we ought to hold up their hands, and we ought to pray for them, and we ought to encourage them when we see those kinds of lives being lived. Because it's service. It's service to God. And we're thankful for those who are involved in that kind of service. This was the last week for... Reading in Sync. And I don't know any better theme to close that particular program than the theme, Awesome God. And when you read 2 Kings, it's kind of like looking at an old photo album. You know, the kind that we had before Facebook. When your mother or your grandmother had all of your baby pictures put into an actual literal book, and you could every once in a while, probably not because you chose to, but because your mom or grandmother wanted to show you, they would pull out that photo album and they would go through and you'd look at it and you'd say, remember that time when we went fishing and this happened? Remember that time when we went on vacation and this happened? And you look at those photos and you're reminded of things that happened in your life and you're reminded of, of, of what was going on at different periods when those photos were taken. Reading Second Kings is like looking at a photo album of God himself. It's like looking at a photo album of God himself and saying, remember that time when God did something that was so amazing, so awesome, people would have ordinarily forgotten about it because when you get to the New Testament, it's all about Jesus Christ and it's all about who he is and what he's come to do. And that is God's will. That's God's desire that we put the focus and emphasis on him. But we need to remember that God is an awesome God and he's always been that way. And so as you read this week in 2 Kings chapters 2 through 7, notice that what's done in that section of the Old Testament, it's not one that maybe we're as familiar with as we might be with, for example, the Gospel of Mark. But notice what's done in the section of 2 Kings chapter 2 all the way through chapter 6. An extended argument is being made about how God is greater 
He's better. He's mightier than all of these ailments that plague us. Allow me to demonstrate. If you recall from your reading this week, and if you haven't read, that's okay. Go back and do this. It will do you some good to see this picture album of who God is and what he's like. God is greater than death. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. There's a widow, and she has creditors, and she has no way to pay her bills. And the man of God says, go and find all the vessels that you can. And God fills those vessels up with oil, and the man of God says, take the oil and sell it and pay your creditors, and then you and your son live on the rest. God cares about widows who are destitute. He's greater than our debt. Not only that, but he's greater than death. Elisha, the man of God, goes and lives with a woman called the Shunammite woman, the woman of Shunam. And her son dies. And the man of God is able to raise her son from the dead. You remember that time when God raised that little boy from the dead? You remember that time when our awesome God could bring people back even from death? What other God can do this? That's what we're supposed to be impressed with as we read 2 Kings. God is greater than drought. When the crops wither, when the streams dry up, when there's a famine in the land, God makes a poisoned stew. They didn't have a bunch of, of, of material to make a new, a new batch. God makes a poisoned stew, not poisoned. He cleanses it. And then after that, a man who has just a little bit of food is able to feed a hundred men. It's reminiscent of what Jesus did when he fed the 5,000. God's greater than even the limitations of our material resources in a time of famine, in a time of drought. This extended argument, this photo album of God, think about what he's greater than. He's greater than disease. Naaman has an incurable disease. Leprosy. And he goes to Israel and he finds cleansing from his disease. Jesus Christ came to be the great physician, the doctor who never lost a case, the doctor who never had anybody that he needed to make a referral. Sorry, I can't help you, but I know another doctor who can. Jesus came to be the great physician because he is our awesome God. And Naaman found that out centuries before Jesus came to earth. God is greater than even our little difficulties. A man is chopping down a tree and the axe head flies off into the water. How are we ever going to be able, this, this axe was borrowed and this is not cheap. And, and it's a problem personal to me, but it's a problem nonetheless. And the man of God makes the axe head by God's power float so that they can reattach it and that the man who borrowed the axe can return it to his owner even the little difficulties in your life and mine, the things that we think are kind of insignificant, the things that we tend to say, you know what, I've got this covered. I can handle this. Even those things God cares about and God is willing to help. Our God is an awesome God. And as you look through 2 Kings, you find picture after picture after picture of how he is more powerful than the things that even today, you look at that list, even today, what are people worried about? What are people distracted by? What are people consumed with? What do people spend their time obsessing over? That exact same list. And our God is mighty. 
Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning, continuing this particular line of reasoning, how God is mighty, how God is better, how God is greater than all the things that plague us and face us. There's an account in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through verse 23, of how there was a time when Syria attacked Israel and God showed his greatness. This section, 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23, is just one more in a litany of evidences of how mighty and awesome our God is. What I'd like for us to do this morning is this, just in three parts, I want us to show three ways in which God is remarkably awesome. Three things about God that every single one of us need to take and allow to sink down deeply into our hearts and minds because our God is mighty. Let's begin reading, if you would, with me in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. The Bible says in 2 Kings 6, 8, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And the king of Syria consulted with his servants and said, My camp will be in such and such place. But the man of God, verse 9, sent to the king of Israel and said, Beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. And so what's happening is the king of Syria, he wants to go and take his armies into Israel. And every time he says, we're going to go to this city, we're going to go to this location, the man of God, Elisha, knows about where the Syrians are headed, and he tips off the king of Israel. And the king of Israel just sends his troops over there, or sends a, a force that can, that can thwart the Syrians. And the Syrian king gets really frustrated by this. And so as you read on, the king brings all of his servants together in verse 11 and says, look, we must have a spy. We must have a mole. We must have an informer among us. Which one of you is telling the Israelites where we're going? Which one of you is tipping off the enemy? And the servants of the king of Syria say, nobody is, at least not among us. It is Elisha. Look at that in verse 12. It is Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, that tells the king the words that you speak in your bedroom. Our God, brothers and sisters and friends, is the God who sees. He is the God who sees. He sees even the secrets of the king of Syria. And the king of Syria, when he wants to attack the people of God, he cannot keep those secrets from God himself. And all that has to happen is God hears and he sees what happens with the king of Syria. He knows what he's planning. He knows where he's going. And God just communicates that information to Elisha, the man of God, who then warns the Israelites. And that's what's happening at the beginning of this passage. Our God is the God who sees. And you know, sometimes we don't think enough about when we talk about our awesome God and we think about his might and his majesty, we don't think enough about what we call the omniscience of God. O-M-N-I-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. -E, omniscience. That means all-knowing. Our God knows everything. He sees everything. Many passages in Scripture indicate this. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the good and over the wicked. God sees. He knows what you're doing in your life. 
He knows the secrets that you're keeping that you think nobody else knows about. He knows those secrets and he is aware of what you're planning, of what you're plotting. He's aware of what plagues you and what troubles you. He's aware of the reasons why you shed tears. God sees everything. Total information awareness. That's our God. The Bible goes on to say in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth and he blesses those who are right in his sight. Over in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 warns us that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. These passages... These reminders that God sees everything, these passages are to cause us to stop and to wonder. And for those who are living in a way that, that is wrong, that is sinful, that offends God, they ought to terrify us. Nothing I've ever done, nothing I've ever said has escaped his attention. And he remembers perfectly. He has no faulty memory. He doesn't get to a point where, you know, he kind of forgets like we do. Over the years, as time goes by, he has perfect recall of everything that we've done and everything that we've said. Multiply that times all the billions. We do indeed serve an awesome God. Jesus himself, it says in John 2, verses 24 and 25, had no need that people should tell him what they were thinking. You didn't have to tell Jesus what you were thinking because Jesus could read your mind. That's what it says in John 2, 24 and 25. He had no need that people could tell him what was going on because he knew what was in man. And how many times when the Pharisees and scribes and disciples were reasoning quietly off to the side and they didn't think Jesus knew what they were thinking about and Jesus would stop and he would turn to them and he would say, why are you reasoning about this in your hearts? He can see right through you. He knows what's going on. This is a terror to those who do evil and it's a comfort to those who do good because, think about this, we serve a God who sees. He can look at what the king of Syria is saying in his bedchamber and he can inform his people. There are some things that God has enlightened us about that we wouldn't otherwise know. That's exactly what the Bible is when you think about it. The Bible is information from God about things that we wouldn't otherwise be informed about. God tells us about the past and what happened in history. God tells us about our present and what he expects of us. And God even tells us about our future. What awaits as time goes on in God's will. Not only that, God knows who we're really up against. We're up against unseen forces. God can see the unseen we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against principalities and powers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. We serve a God who sees everything. You know, a lot of times people get involved in sin in their lives and they think that somehow they're, they're keeping it secret. And they're, they're, they're saying to themselves, you know, it only really affects me and it only, it's only about me and my relationship with God. It's not true. Sin affects everybody. And not only that, God sees from the very beginning the things that we think are secret, the things that we think nobody knows about. Even in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, beware 
because your sin will find you out. We serve a God who sees. The scripture says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 that one day, the day of judgment, God is going to judge the secrets of men. All of our secrets will be laid bare, will be laid open before the God who sees. He is an awesome God indeed. So the king of Syria hears that God has been informing the people of Israel about his plans. And so the king of Syria says, well, I guess priority one must be now that we need to find this guy, Elisha, and we need to do something about him. And so they find out that Elisha is in a place in Israel called Dothan, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. And the army of the king of Syria comes and they surround the city of Dothan where Elisha is. And that's where we pick up with our next point in our lesson this morning. Look at verse 15. The servant of the man of God woke up early one morning and he went out and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to Elisha, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, I pray, open my servant's eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What do we learn about our awesome God? He is the God who surrounds his people. He's the God who surrounds his people. He is mighty. He is omnipotent. O-M-N-I-P-O-T-E-N-T. He is all powerful. And the scripture indicates in this passage that he is the God who has surrounded the people who think they've got his people surrounded. So there's Elisha and his servant in the city. And you've got an army that you can see with your eyes right outside the city. But there was another army that couldn't be seen until the man's eyes were opened and he was able to see, oh, God's got them surrounded. The Bible indicates that God is a God who is faithful to his people and he protects his people and he surrounds his people. Here in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, you've got the passage which says, those who are with us are more who, than those who are with them. I think that's a great verse to memorize. When you look around or you watch the news or you hear people talking in society or you see things that you never thought in all your life that you'd see and you hear people doing things that you'd never thought in all your life that you'd hear being done, it's good for the people of God to have memorized the passage that says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You may not be able to see it, but it's still the truth even today. In the Old Testament, book of Psalms, chapter 125 and verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord has surrounded his people. God surrounds, he cares for, he protects those who belong to him. In Psalm 27, verse 3, David wrote these words. He said, even though a host, a, a, an army encamps against me, my heart shall not be afraid. You know why? 
Why are you not afraid when an army encamps against you, David? I mean, who are you against all this army? David said, it's because, Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I be afraid of? That was David's perspective on things. And when you look through the passages of the Bible, men and women of God consistently walked by faith, believing every step of the way that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And they dared and did mighty things and said truthful things to people who needed to hear those things. Because God surrounds his people. Even our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he was contemplating the cross... Do you remember this? Jesus said, don't you know that I can pray right now to my heavenly father and he'll send 12 legions of angels? And we sing the song, don't we? He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free because those who are with him are more than those who are trying to put him on the cross. But see, here's the other thing about all of that. God surrounds his people. God protects us. God cares for us. God outnumbers when when I stand with God any enemy that opposes God is outnumbered when that's true that's that's always true but what God expects of you and me is this that we trust him implicitly and that we obey his will without question without reservation trust and obey And the question is, why did Jesus not call for those 12 legions of angels? Because Jesus trusted God and because Jesus was dedicated to the obedience of God's will no matter what. Trust and obey. God surrounds his people. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Keep trusting God. Keep obeying his will and let his will be done. Matthew 26, verse 39. God surrounds his people. That's a comfort when people are struggling And they think maybe nobody knows about their struggles. He sees and he surrounds those who care for him. So, the Bible says that the man of God, Elisha, as you continue reading in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, the man of God prays. It's interesting how often the prophets prayed. They depended on God and they set an example for us. They didn't know what to do. But when they prayed, God responded. The man of God prays that God might strike the Syrian army with blindness, and so he does. And then the man of God goes out and says, you guys are in the wrong place. Come with me. And so the army follows the prophet all the way to the gates of the city of Samaria, and they even go inside the gates, it appears. And then the prophet prays again, and all of a sudden the Syrian army, their eyes are opened, and there they are standing helpless before the king of Israel and his armies. Bizarre things. Do you remember the time that God did this? Do you remember the time that God did this? What an awesome God we serve. That's what 2 Kings is calling you to do. Remember the time that God did this? He brought the enemies and left them helpless before his own people. And so the king of Israel asked the question. Look at verse 21 of 2 Kings 6. The king of Israel says to Elisha, he says, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Is that what you want? Do you want me to put them to death? I mean, they came here to cause us harm. And we're the people that belong to God, and God's not going to put up with that. 
Elisha responds differently, though, than what he might expect. Elisha says in verse 22 of 2 Kings 6, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those who have been taken captive with your sword and with your bow? No, set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so the king of Israel, instead of slaughtering his enemies, prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders, it says, came no more into the land of Israel. Who did all this? It was God. What do you learn about God in this section? Number three, he is the God who shows mercy. He had every right to show justice. What were those Syrians doing among his people in his land? They didn't come by God's will, but God shows mercy. He treated them better than they deserved. And here's the thing about 2 Kings chapter 6, actually chapters 5 and 6, actually 1 and 2 Kings in general. The people of Israel had in their minds that they were the chosen of God, and they were absolutely right about that. God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless his descendants. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God had promised the Israelite people that they were his people. They were his possession. He was going to surround them and protect them, and they were right about all that. But when you read First and Second Kings, you also find that God cares about his enemies as well. And Naaman... A Syrian general in 2 Kings chapter 5 is able to come down to Israel and he's able to find cleansing for his leprosy. Yeah, but he's not an Israelite. Doesn't matter. He comes and he humbles himself and he obeys God and God helps him. And now the Syrian army in 2 Kings 6, the very next chapter, comes to Israel and they have every plan of attacking and slaughtering and destroying and capturing God instead leaves them helpless, and then God shows them mercy. And what God intended for the books of 1 and 2 Kings to do is to be a light, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. He wanted those Syrians in ancient times to read these words and to understand that they could find help in the God of Israel, that they could find mercy with the God of Israel. And brothers and sisters and friends, God wants you to hear that message too. That no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, and no matter what you've done, you can come and humble yourself and submit to God's will, and you can find the same things that people like Naaman and the Syrians found. What did they find from God? They found mercy and grace and compassion and healing. That is an awesome God. He's the God that we serve. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Who will I obtain mercy from? From God himself, Matthew 5, verse 7. What kind of God do we serve? The kind of God whose goodness is to lead us to repentance. The kind of God who is like the father in the far country and his son remembers when he's destitute and he's at rock bottom and he's lost everything, the son thinks about who God is. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? I'm just going to go back home and I'm going to just say, God, father, make me like one of your hired servants. And at least I'll have enough to eat because he's a God who shows mercy 
Luke 15, verse 17. That was the first good decision the prodigal son made to remember what his father was like. That might well be the best decision you make in your life to think about the goodness and the mercy and the invitation that God offers. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3 tells us that we ought to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. And then it goes on to say, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, the grace and the mercy of God invite us into a relationship with him. And when we talk about our awesome God, he sees right through you. He knows everything you've ever done. He protects and surrounds his people. If you want to attack the people of God, if you want to try to do harm and violence to God's people, God's not going to take that lightly. And after having seen all of that, he's still a God who cares about you and shows mercy to those who are willing to come to him. What an awesome God we serve. And what an amazing picture we see of God as we read the pages of Old Testament books that most people just skip right over in their reading. What an amazing God. And he's a God who wants to show mercy to you today. If you know that you're lost in your sin, if you know that your life is not pleasing to him, he wants to show mercy. He offers that to you freely. Come to him, repent of that sin, believe on his son, Jesus Christ, be baptized. Baptism is a way that God's mercy and grace enter our lives because we come into contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ when we're baptized. We put on Christ at that point, Galatians 3 verse 27. If you want to respond to heaven's invitation this morning, or if you need to respond and ask for prayers... Won't you come to our awesome God while we stand and while we sing?